Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 347 of Charlotte Rears Podcast Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue, and also you might hear from baby Gwen in the background. Uh, we've got a <laughs> special guest. Yeah, we've got a great lineup for you today. Yeah, we're going to start first with an author feature with New York Times bestselling author of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series, Laurel K. Hamilton, and she's going to be talking about her latest in the series called Smolder. Yep, and up next we have a two-minute tip from Paul Reale of Charlotte Lit called Writer Independence from Dependence. Yeah, and then we've got uh, David Weinberg. He's the author of Jacob Marley on Broadway. Uh, his blog post today is Be the Reader. Then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast books? This month uh, we're celebrating the release of book five in the Write Quotes series titled... Uh, writing techniques and characters. Yeah, we're super excited to bring this one out. Um, these have very inspirational and practical quotes in these books. They come from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors who live in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, this book reveals how writers really feel about writing techniques and characters. Um, to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the Podcast Books tab in the menu bar. Um, you can order the book online and in print wherever books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quotes series, which focuses on the writing life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to the writing universe. So just look for that <laughs> link on the Podcast Books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order um, the upcoming books in the series now. And when you do, you help support the podcast. Uh, we're, we're already up to uh, five books now. And uh, the sixth one is going to be on writing community revision and editors with an August 1 release. And book seven is the emotional writing journey with a September 1st release. And book eight is publishing and bookmarking with an October 1st release. If you want to receive all eight of these wonderful looks for free, you can join our street team. You can just go to the link and the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com or also on the podcast books page of the website. There's a link there. All you have to do to receive all ebooks free is just agree to uh, leave short, honest reviews online about the books. Just a few words about how you felt about them. Um, these books aren't heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, we'll give you all the books for free before they release, and that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews um, that you'll be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing. So lots of good stuff. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, uh, here we are with the uh, interview portion of the show, Act One. Uh, today, uh, we have an interview with uh, Laurel Hamilton uh, talking about her latest book, Smolder. It's the latest in the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter book series. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about Laurel. Um, sure. Laurel K. Hamilton is a full-time writer and the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series, also the Zaniel Havelock series and the Mary Gentry series. Um, she has more than 40 novels published and she continues to create fiction inspired by her lifelong love of monster stories, ghost stories, mythology, folklore, and things that go bump in the night. Her love of the macabre books in general, animals, and nature led her to degrees in English and biology. She's a non-practicing biologist, but she does use her science to add an extra level of realism to her fiction which I think is really interesting. Um, she currently lives in St. Louis with her family, two spoiled Japanese chins, a house panther, and a house lion. <laughs> oh my gosh, she sounds like the Mary Poppins of the dark arts. This is amazing. <laughs> um, in her free time, she trains in Filipino martial arts with a specialization in blade work and travels to scuba dive and bird watch as often as she can. <laughs> okay, we haven't had quite a bio like that. It's a uh, great bio. <laughs> in a while. Uh, so uh, Hannah can... Uh, you share a little bit about the book. 
Yeah, so this book is really great. It's about Anita Blake, who is a vampire hunter and is no stranger to killing monsters. It's part of her job as a U.S. Marshal, after all. But even her experience isn't enough to stop something that is bent on destroying everything and everyone she loves. In this book, there is more than just a murderer to catch. An ancient evil has arrived in St. Louis, which is, you know, where Laurel lives. Lots of creepy stuff happening (laughs) out there. (laughs) All right, well, you know, July 11th is not quite uh, Halloween, but uh, we're going to still get... uh, down here with a little monster action today. Uh, Let's listen in to Hannah's interview with Laurel. Hey listeners, we are here with Laurel K. Hamilton, who is the author of Smolder, which is book 29 (laughs) in the Anita Blake series. Um, How does it feel (laughs) to reach book 29 in a series? That's insane. It feels absolutely amazing because um, I remember when I got the contract for the first three books, in the series, I remember thinking to myself gleefully, oh my God, at least there'll be three books in this series. <laughs> and for contract after contract, I thought, oh, I get to do this many books. Never did I dream that I would get to book 29 in a single series, let alone be able to write Anita and her world for 29 books. Oh my gosh, I know. And like, she's changed so much, like her character journey. And I'm sure, and I've, you know, I've read a lot about you and I know that you kind of feel like your characters are, you know, they're people, they're your friends and they are, right? So, I mean, how, how have you developed her over so many books and so many years? Well, I, I didn't do it on purpose. I really didn't plan on this big a character arc. I didn't think she would change that much. But remember, when I sat down to write the first Anita Blake novel, I was 24. So I didn't expect myself to change that much. I didn't understand that you could change that that much in one lifetime without, I I just didn't know that's how it worked or could work. So uh, it wasn't planned at all. It really wasn't planned. she started out, she, she is still Christian, card-carrying Christian, goes to church. She's still Episcopalian. People keep asking about that, as if you can't have zombies and werewolves and things and still be a churchgoer. Why not? You know? Um, but, yes, we start the books with her having no dating life, no personal life. She helps the police. She raises zombies. She is very unhappy. She's really got very little happy in her life. And then as the book goes, books go along, she not only dates successfully, isn't have long-term relationships, but she goes from looking for Mr. Right and monogamy to being polyamorous. And that was, again, not, not planned. And she also now at this point in the series has her own badge because she's a U.S. Marshal with the Preternatural Branch. Uh, so she's not just a vampire hunter. She started the series with, she's not just a vampire executioner for the government, but she's actually a U.S. Marshal with her own badge. And just over the course of the series too, just, you bring up the fact that when you first started writing her, you know, she was kind of unhappy. She's sort of, and again, like at 24, we're all sort of (laughs) figuring things out. Um, but I love the role, like you've, you've made a, you've made a point to kind of include therapy in your books. Um, so I kind of want to yes. think, I want to talk to you a little bit about that decision to do that and just how that kind of helped character development. I mean, it's a very cool thing that you were able to do that so successfully. Well, one of the reasons I included therapy is that had I not had therapy, I wouldn't have made it out of my 20s. I'll just flat say that. Therapy saved my life. And I have had been, I have been in and out of therapy um, most of my, from from college at like, 2021 all the way to where I am now. Um, I believe if you are blessed to have a life where there is no trauma, then bless blessings to you, you know, blessed be, I am so happy for you. But for the rest of us, life has been hard and, or we are born with certain characteristics that make life hard. And so therapy is a godsend. It is, it is, it is just absolutely necessary. I, I have a new therapist. I'm back in therapy and happy to be so. Um, I just think that for most of us, good therapy is absolutely essential. So, so the other thing is, is that when I first started putting in therapy, especially from Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel Grayson, Nathaniel's journey, when we start the series, 
He is, uh, he is a recovering addict and you're always a recovering addict. That's something I've learned in my research. Mm-hmm. You're never cured. You're recovering, a recovering alcoholic, a recovering drug addict, whatever your addiction is always a recovery because you right. never know if you fall off the wagon, if you have another recovery in you. I had so much feedback from the fans that were positive. That's one of the reasons I hit it hard. I, I said, okay, if, if somebody in the series has an issue that could be helped by therapy and they go to get that therapy, they get better. I'll show that. I'll show that, that, that it works, but that it's not easy. I feel like when you think of typical fantasy, right, or paranormal fiction, um, it's sort of, I think the, the indication is like, oh, this is all in my brain. This is like imagined stuff. Like it's all dragons and zombies. Like you were saying, a vampire like all of this stuff. But you research so much um, and you can feel that in your writing. So it's not only, and this kind of ties into everything we were just talking about with therapy and all that kind of stuff too. It's like, I mean, your books, even though you don't see a dragon, <laughs> Or like vampire kings and, you know, all this kind of stuff on a daily basis. Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but it's it's like you still, it's so relatable still because you can feel how much effort you've put into researching, you know, the human mind and just how, how to protect yourself, politics, policing, you know, stuff like that. So can you tell, tell me just a little bit more about your process for that? Like how do you start researching? Well, I will say this, first of all, that I am a sixth, I have a sixth degree or sixth level in uh, Kali of Filipino martial arts. So, so I have put effort into that, but um, uh, how do I research? Well, uh, the old thing they used to tell you in college and in high school is write what you know. And my rule is write what you want to know. Yeah. I love that. What do you want to write about? What interests you? Um, I knew nothing about guns at all when I started writing the Anita Blake series. And yet she works, she has, she has to fight shapeshifters and vampires and stay alive. And she's this five, three, five, three petite woman. And it's like, how is she going to stay alive? She's going to have to have a weapon. And I knew nothing about them. So first, first, when you're researching anything, I don't care if you're researching guns, flowers, gardening, um, anything. First start with uh, start with books and magazines. Start with books and magazines. Now, there's some good sites, good websites online, but do not do your research online only. Go to the library or get get uh, ebooks. But your library, your research librarian, is your friend. And um, but start with books and do your research first, so that when you finally go into your experts and find somebody who's willing to talk to you that you won't ask stupid questions. Please, please, please do not go to somebody who's an expert on something and ask them to tell them everything about their specialty. It shows, la- it shows laziness on your part and it shows also that you don't value their time. Their time, attention, expertise took years to acquire. You, you, deserve, you should make them feel that you've done basic groundwork in their specialty before you, so you, you can ask smart questions. People love to talk about what they love to do, but not if you sound like you don't respect what they do. And if you come to them without good questions, that shows a lack of respect. Uh, so first, well, I mean, I can't be an expertise at everything I do. I, I, on paper, on paper, it's just, it's too much, it's too broad. Um, I try to use every weapon or at least touch every weapon that I use and that Edward, uh, Edward USA, you know, U.S. Marshal Ted Forrester uses in the books. I will add the caveat that I have not used a flamethrower and he <laughs> likes flamethrowers. And, and before anybody else offers to let me strap a flamethrower through my back and, and use it, I do. I just have a problem with putting flammable liquid on my back. I think that's flame. reasonable. <laughs> I, I find it reasonable. People I, Someday I will use one because every time I use anything that I write about, it can come as close as I can to it. I always learn something I wouldn't have learned had I not held it in my hands, tried to do it myself, or stood on that piece. You know, uh, Edward lives in Albuquerque, uh, between Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he told me he lived there. I had never researched. I'd never been there. 
Right. I said, you're an imaginary character I created. You can't live someplace I've never been. As soon as I stepped off the plane in Albuquerque, I went, damn it, you live here. Oh my gosh. You know, that is so crazy. And like, I love that you have this relationship with your characters like you do, because I mean, and I've, you know, I've read a lot about you and I've seen a couple of your interviews in the past. And I think it's really neat. And I can feel this with our conversation right now. It's how passionate you are about these people because they're your friends, right? They're people that you communicate with. And, um, you know, I think that it's such a powerful thing to be able to listen to that creative voice. And so, I mean, what is that like for you? Is it kind of like you have multiple personalities inside your brain? Is it like they're next to you or how does it work for your, for your mind and your process? I'm a first person narrator. So for me, it's just Anita, Anita's viewpoint is my camera. Um, in the marriage interest series, it's Mary because I, I, I am such a f- hardcore first-person writer that it's not. Maybe if I wrote multiple viewpoints, it would be more multiple personality-ish. But Edward doesn't talk to me on a regular basis. Edward just comes into my head or comes onto the page, and he's done whatever he's done. He does not discuss his actions with me. Um, other people, other characters, I have some characters are put together for a purpose. And like Anita was put together for a purpose. She was supposed to be uh, the film noir detective, but she was supposed to be female that could give the men a run for their money. And somebody who could cuss with the boys, uh, sexual content was, was, didn't have to be censored because she was a girl. Um, violence, she, she could do all the, the big detect the male detectives could do, but with the supernatural elements. And so with that in mind, Anita came out of that, and I'd loved uh, I'd loved the supernatural my whole life. So it was an easy mix, and I love mysteries. So putting them together, um, and then Jean Claude, though, on the other hand, he stepped out. I wanted to make him Spanish because I spoke Spanish thirty years ago, and I could read Spanish, and I still pronounce it well, and. He determined to be French, which I didn't know, and I will never pronounce well, I'm told by native speakers. Um, He insisted on being French once I got out of his way and let him be French. Because I thought really Anne Rice had kind of cornered the whole French market on vampires. I thought it was trite by this time. And, but but he insisted he had to be French. And once I let him be French, Jean-Claude stepped on stage with the clothes and the attitude and, and he knew exactly what he looked like as soon as I let him be himself. And I find that, um, I find that like Edward, I was having trouble getting his character in the first book. And because he's the, you know, assassin where humans were too, too easy for him. So he does only monsters or things he think might kill him. And then one afternoon when the book was going nowhere, they had the original day of the jackal, uh, on with, uh, one of the, uh, uh, Edward, one of the Fox brothers, uh, I think it was Edward Fox, because I think that's why Edward is named Edward, because it's after Edward Fox, who played in the original movie. And he doesn't, that was the jumping off points. Edward became his own character after that. But the fact that Edward is blonde and blue eyed and looks very wasp, very, is because of watching that movie. And that suddenly helped me solidify Edward's character. Um, so some characters you you Frankenstein together because you have a purpose for them. Some some just come out of nothing, um, and you don't know where they come from. Nathaniel certainly uh, Nathaniel's character wasn't planned, but once he was on stage, he led me to do research into BMS, he uh, BDMS uh, bondage and submission the culture, and that was before I realized I was part of the culture. And, um, sorry, I, um, and I also, uh, did some, did research on, on child abuse and very hard topics. You know, when you say you have a hard childhood, if you're Nathaniel is saying Nathaniel has a hard childhood. It's like saying the Titanic, the Titanic was a bad boating accident. It's, it's just, and the fact that, um, one of the things that solidified his character and his name was that in research in the BDSM community, I 
came across somebody who was a character that everybody was talking about because nobody knew where he was. And his name was Nathaniel and he disappeared. And he was uh, more than just submissive. He was like a pet. He had, he didn't have, he wouldn't give a safe word in time. You had to really protect him. And everybody was talking about it. I never met him. And to my knowledge, no, he never came back into the community. He, he probably went with somebody that wasn't safe and there was nobody to keep him safe. And so when Nathaniel, the character, that was one of the reasons Nathaniel's character had to survive because the part of the original research that came together, the idea that anybody would be so willing to be submissive that they would actually allow themselves to be truly hurt, truly injured beyond saving. That was such a sobering thought. I knew it would go in the book. I knew it would be part of the character. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so one of the things when you research is you will not, if you do not research, you will not be good on paper. You just won't. And uh, the BDSM subculture is one of the ones that still, still people take a swing at without doing any research. And it shows, and it can be wildly popular and sell, but anybody in the community knows you're wrong and knows that you don't respect their sexual preference. And that's just so insulting. Yeah, and that authenticity, it truly comes through. I believe it. Like, I mean, I believe, you know, I, I am a firm believer in just being authentic storytelling is so visible to me. So like, that's why reading your books and your work, you can totally tell either you're part of the community that you're writing about, you identify with the characters or you've done thorough research, you know, cause it feels real. I think you can kind of tell, and I guess you're right when you say like with the BDSM community, I mean, I, for people who don't know anything about it, right? Like I don't really know a whole lot about it. It's, I wouldn't really know exactly what's true and what's not, but I do think that, it's very, you can, you can sort of feel if you're a reader who really um, is very involved in storytelling, I think you can kind of feel that still. The research, you always start with books, magazines, uh, good websites, good websites that, that are knowledgeable. Don't just go on any website because anybody can put anything up on the internet. And, and then go to your experts. And then go to your experts with respectful, good questions. And, and every bit of research, I do so much more research than goes on the page. So much more. Um, um, for Smolder, I didn't put a bibliography in the back. I had recently started doing that. I did that with uh, my book, A Terrible Fall of Angels. And one of the reasons I didn't is I thought the bibliography would give away one of the big reveals in the book. Or would to me, in my head, because I've done all the research, it would have given away to me. So... Um, the next book, which will be later this year, um, Slay, will have the bibliography have the bibliography for both Smolder and Slay, because the Smolder reveals reveals the thing I was trying not to reveal in the bibliography, and then um, uh, I can't give that away. Uh, part of the mystery continues in part part of part of this part that I didn't want to give away continues in the next book, because um, anything a good a good villain or a good scare, uh, you know, the, the monsters never stay dead. You always have to have to continue on for a while. And, um, but, but for the first time I put together a really complete bibliography. I even, I, I'm even starting to list the websites that I do trust that I do use because it is an important resource now. In the first book, we had something, uh, we had a, a called a freak party where vampires and people that wanted to meet vampires could, could, could get up close and personal. And, um, and I, I said it in a real house in St. Charles, you can actually follow directions. I, 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 I drove the path. I put the directions in like you do in regular mysteries. Right. And then I heard from, I heard that people were knocking on these poor people's door looking for the freak party in this, their house. And I, and that was it. I, and people were starting to try to find the mon the, the real places, the supernaturals were happening. So I started moving them around a little because right. I don't want you knocking on someone's house, expecting to find my vampires. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, 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 I love that people believe in my world that much. And yeah. I still get people at signings asking for the phone number of my fictional characters. Oh my gosh. You know, and, and yeah. they're, they're, they're serious. They're serious. Um, Jason, <sighs> Jason, Jason gets the, gets the most requests for phone numbers. I, I, everyone likes Jason. He seems very approachable, apparently of all my characters. And I have had with people that. ask for his phone number. And, <laughs> and what I say is, if Jason were real and my friend, then he wouldn't want me giving my his phone number away to strangers. And they go, oh, I guess not. I guess not. So, yeah. I have one more question I just want to ask you. This has been kind of like, I think your relationship with your fans is so unique, right? So you are like, I mean, and everybody go follow Laurel on TikTok. You're just killing it on there. I think it's so fun what you're doing. It's fantastic. But I mean, I've noticed you say this a couple of different times during this conversation that you're, you know, you've had a fan write you or at a signing and you really listen to them, it feels like, right? So you kind of see what they want um, and they, what they enjoy most. And can you just talk about that relationship? Let me add, let me add a caveat to that yeah if they're polite if you're nice and polite yeah but if somebody is not nice or polite about it no no <laughs> well, that's good even that's if good i was planning to do it even if i was planning to do it the answer is no now because um if but yes if if people are very sincere especially you know um anita would not be the person she was if i hadn't done research and talked to actual police actual military and watch their journey, how they've changed over the years. Anita is a different character because they shared their stories with me. And once I started putting that in there, then, then people felt free to talk to me about things. And, and I never use their stories in any book. It's just the, the journey that they've been on, how they've changed as a person because of the job. And, um, so, and when people tell me that, you know, the therapy has made them go to therapy, that they didn't think addiction could be fixed, that they didn't think they deserved a good life because of what had happened to them. And they tell me that they've gone to therapy because Nathaniel did and because Nathaniel had a, a happy ending, happy life, that they also think they might have one too. I mean, that's powerful, of, of course. And... I didn't expect people to take my story so, so seriously. And, um, and so, um, it's made me more conscientious about putting in things that people tell me. And it's also, um, um, I do research for my, my violence, my true crime. And I research, um, I research sex the same way I research anything else. I treat it with the same respect. I don't, I don't make, I don't differentiate, which is interesting because most, most writers do apparently. And, um, because people not only use what I write about for their safety and tell me that it's worked for them and their mental health, but I am told this, I didn't expect this. And when I first started writing and including sex, in the books, I didn't anticipate the need, but I have people telling me that they are, they are, they are getting knowledge on how things work in that area too. It's sad when you have to turn to fiction for that, to be honest, you should, we should teach that more, but everything I write, somehow it seems to reach out to people. And, and so, yes, I listen to that. I value that. I value what people are saying to me. And, um, and so I do, I do listen. If, if it's, how can you not listen to people when they tell you things that are heartfelt and they feel seen by somebody character in my books, in my series touches them and they feel like they're seen. You're and like my favorite kind of storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, representation matters. And I mean, I didn't know this was going to be an in thing, but Anita is, is Anita is biracial. And that means that her mother was first generation born in this country from Mexico. Her father was originally going to be first generation born from his family in Germany. But due to the fact that Anita is, is in our timeline, but when we started, uh, it's 30 years on this end, it's 10 years on her end. So, her, the German side of her family may have had to come 
later to here because of just the history for Germany that I was going to use. I'm second generation German born in this family. Um, I am, I, and so she chose her heritage. That was one thing I did not plan. She chose her name. She chose to be Anita. She chose to be half, half Hispanic. And, and when I created that 30 years ago, nobody cared. Let me just say that. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted to write about women. Nobody wanted to write strong women. And nobody cared about representation. And over the years, it's become more and more important because people tell me it's important. Tell me that it's the first time I had somebody recently tell me it was the first time they'd seen themselves on stage because Anita was raised by her father's family. So she, yes, she's half Hispanic, but she knows nothing about that side of her family. And so many people are cut off, we're cut off from our heritage. We're, we're so cut off from our heritage. Right. Um, and what that means and the impact of it. Yeah. But this... I was telling a good story. I didn't, under, <laughs> I just did my research. I didn't know that it was going to be as meaningful yeah. and as it turned out to be. Well, yeah, and they are, and they're they're all so amazing. All all twenty nine of the books, honestly, and I think even the fact that they ha there are so many of them over the course of so many years, it's like impossible for them not to be transformative in terms of the characters and as ter in terms of the reader, you know. So, and for you as the author, so I mean, amazing, 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 amazing. I love it. And um, again, I wish we had like copious amounts of time, but I think I'm going to take you up on the <laughs> offer to do something else with you very soon. I would love that. Um, but yes. for now, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and everybody, not only should you get Smolder, get all 29 of the Anita Blake books, please. You will not be, this is just, what a great way to spend your summer is reading these books. Um, thank you so much for being here, Laurel. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are with Act 2. Uh, we're in the writing topics portion of the show. Uh, we first have a tip from Paul Reality. The tip today is... Writer independence from dependence, sort of in the theme of uh, the uh, July Independence Month. So let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the first of a series of tips written especially for summertime, beginning with this writer's take on Independence Day. Historically, of course, Independence Day marks the United States declaring itself independent from British rule. We are all dependent on so many external others, people, organizations, circumstances, biology, and so on. In just the way that many of us make a resolution to behave in a new way come New Year's Day, I believe we should take Independence Day each year to declare ourselves independent of some dependency that is holding us back from something we want. You could take this approach and apply it to your entire life, but let's focus here on your writing practice. Ask this question, what does your writing depend on? That is, what forces allow or prevent you from getting your writing done? Here are some examples to demonstrate. I am dependent on my biology. I don't have creative energy at the end of the day after work, so I need to write in the mornings. My being able to write in the mornings is dependent on getting up early and getting up early is dependent on getting to sleep on time, which for me is lights out by 11. Lights out at 11 is dependent on the choices I make in the evening. And here at last, I can identify the things I need to declare independence from. Watching a second episode of whatever I'm watching and reading the news without a time limit. These two habits, and that's all they are, habits, are dependencies that harm my writing. So this year, I declare independence from a second episode of anything ever and independence from more than 20 minutes of news reading. Your action step, then, is to unearth one dependency that is harming your ability to create your art and declare independence from it. Like the revolutionaries, you can't just sign the paper and be done with it. You might have to fight for it, but it will be worth it.
For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right. Thanks, Paul. I suppose we should give a rousing huzzah to that uh, little message there. Uh, We're talking about dependencies here. Um, What are we dependent on, Hannah, that uh, is taking up your time? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me think. She just grabbed a hold of the microphone. (laughs) I know. And literally, like, I had muted myself while Paul was giving this tip, but she was, like, smacking the desk. So she was clearly giving all of the huzzahs to him. So (laughs) shout out, Paul. (laughs) This is going to be one of the earliest podcasters uh, in history, Uh, Gwen... You know, Gwen she's, Larue, I know she's yeah. like yeah, she's yeah. like this is my moment. I was meant to shine right now. She, she I'm definitely dependent on her schedule right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, would say. I don't think you can declare independence from <laughs> that. Can you? Not for a while. I think that, yeah, not for a while. Um, I do love this tip though a lot, and I think I love that he's kind of giving you actionable like steps that you can take towards creating more time for yourself in your writing, and or you know creating a routine that or habits that kind of um, like. I don't know, encourage you to get all of that stuff done because I, you know, for me, I, he goes, you know, it's whether I watch a second episode of the show I'm watching, I'm, I've historically, that's always like me. I'm like, I could just do one more, you know, <laughs> like I love TV. I'll do that. But it's like in doing that, you know, it's another hour and you just sort of don't have time. It's just, it's so hard to manage time, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it's just a tough thing, but I really, I think that's a great tip. Yeah. yeah, and I think uh, maybe you've got codependence now, right? You can mm-hmm. maybe do some things, but you're going to do it with Gwen, right? Well, yeah. exactly, exactly. I've learned I'm very good at multitasking now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was before, honestly, but now I'm like, I didn't even know what that meant <laughs> until now. And, and, and Sarah, you know, if you just cut out, uh, I don't know, six of your 20 writer <laughs> yeah, groups, you yeah. could write another novel, right? Real quick. Yeah, yeah well, seriously, though, I, I have had to like restrain myself from getting involved in more things and say no to certain things because I I have a tendency to be like yes I'll just do everything Mm -hmm. but then you know you can't no human can do that so you have to know when to say no to stuff Um, I also think I'm dependent on caffeine with my writing (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I, I write so much better if I have a little bit of caffeine which I know is probably not good to feel like I have to have that to be productive and creative so yeah, I think it's good to, oh my gosh, Quinn is like hitting the mic. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, yeah, I think just being able to identify like where your time is actually going and the things that make you productive um, for everyone is important, but especially for writers, because you have to sometimes get the conditions like just right to be able to feel like you're able to be productive and um, get into that creative flow. And so, yeah, I think being able to be a little bit flexible about that is good. Yeah, it's too bad this is not a video <laughs> podcast today because everybody can see Hannah and Gwen wrestling over the microphones. <laughs> I know we're competing right now for the attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gwen She's just was very it. fascinated with the silver end of that microphone. Very you know, shiny. Yeah. It's her favorite uh, thing. This so is a good angle for her. <laughs> I, I think this whole idea of uh, dependence is a good one. Um, we are... You know, we're recording these sessions for the summer uh, early. We're doing it in May so that we can actually have a break during the summer from recording to give ourselves a little time to do some writing and some moving and some getting settled. So, you know, that is one thing. We've become dependent upon you as listeners and us as uh, hosts, but uh, every now and then you need a little break. So we have pressed hard and we're doing that uh, now, so that's one thing we will have declared independence from this summer is, is any recording, and uh, except that you'll still be listening to them every week, we hope, because they'll be coming out. Uh, we've just done it early. So that's one thing, you know, kind of get your schedule settled there, and when, you, when you've when you done it the way we've done it in the last couple of months, recording all these episodes in advance, there's really not much time to declare independence from anything, right, because we're, we're, we're so busy. But it is a good tip, and I think um, I think that extra show – uh, you know, maybe doing some things that uh, you could, you know, you could do without to work in your schedule uh, is a good idea. So, uh, you know, grab a six pack of Captain Jack and declare independence <laughs> from, you know, something and <laughs> and go sit down and write right from away. Something. Uh, something. <laughs> Anything <laughs> something. at all. <laughs> Anything at all. All right. Well, uh, we'll be right back. We're going to have our community blog post next. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. 
Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, here we are with uh, our community blog post. Uh, the author today is David Weinberg. He's the author of Jacob Marley on Broadway. Interesting post uh, this week is called Be the Reader. Sarah, can you tell us about uh, David? Yeah, sure. David is a writer, film producer, and musician. Most recently, he was a quarterfinalist in the 2022 Creative Screenwriting Pilot Competition for a sitcom called POTUS. Um, his recent book is Jacob Marley on Broadway, A Ghostly Love Story. Great title. Mm -hmm. And he says he owns the two most spoiled cats in America. <laughs> well, we've got a ghostly episode today with vampires and yeah, know, Jacob true. Marley, Getting ghostly very love story. supernatural yeah. for the summer here. All right. All right well, let's listen in uh, to David's post. What story should I write? I've been writing mostly screenplays for the past 30 years. 12 years ago, found myself wanting to be a film producer. I've come close to getting all the pieces of the film puzzle assembled twice. They say close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. For entrepreneurs, writers, and producers, there is often more to be learned from failure than from success. First and foremost, you must understand your target audience for both fiction and nonfiction. The world does not need more great authors. Take a walk through Barnes and Noble. We are drowning in great writers. What the world wants and needs are great stories. What is a great story? Put simply, it is a story your target audience wants and needs to read. For my current novel, I wanted to write a contemporary romantic comedy involving the real Ebenezer Scrooge and Jacob Marley. Their lives were ruined by their best friend, Charles Dickens, when he wrote and published A Christmas Carol. My novel was born from a screenplay. A Netflix reader felt it wouldn't resonate with their young audience, as Dickens and Scrooge have been tossed off to the dustbin of history, relics of a different age. Committing to this story universe allowed me lots of latitude in creating the spirit world where my characters live. The first thing I had to do was story map my characters. We all here write what you know, nonsense. I knew nothing about the gentlemen's clubs and boys' schools of Victoria and England. That's the world of my characters and it needed to become my world as well. Fortunately, researching those worlds is pretty easy on the internet. You must do research for nonfiction and especially for fiction. Readers are pretty sharp. You can invent your entire universe and all who inhabit it. However, if your universe has rules that don't make sense, your readers won't buy into it and your book will crash and burn. The MacGuffin in Hollywood is what propels people into the story. In my case, I took two characters that many people know well and reimagined them with real lives. I added God and Lucifer and two relatable heroines for the audience to root for. Make sure it's funny where it needs to be funny and sad where it needs to be sad. More than anything, make your characters three-dimensional and relatable. Back to my question, what story should I write? Is it about a cat or have a cat in it? YouTube proves people love cat stories. No, I'm not suggesting a flood of cat-inspired novels unless they make me laugh or cry, and then I am. Maybe you should put some sex in your story. Sex is universal and people like it. You make that decision at your own risk. Sex will lose you more readers than it brings you unless you're writing a harlequin romance. Once again, it all starts with asking yourself what your audience wants to read, which to me trumps the idea of writing what you may have wanted to write. Where to begin? Least common denominator. David Kirkpatrick, a former president of Columbia Studios once said, people go to the movies to gather in the dark and share in the community of emotions. It's the same with books, except we're not all sharing the community of emotions all at the same time. The community of emotions. Ever hear of Stephen King? Boy, is he good at scaring the crap out of people. Some people love to be scared in a controlled environment. 
To me, his books are scarier than any of the movies made from them. Love, hate, fear, belonging, hunger, loneliness. Start with your list of things that bind you to your family and friends. Ask them if those same things bind them to you. The list you put together will drive you to finding your story and characters. Of course, there is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. You need to be able to write your story. Your prose needs to be well-crafted and your dialogue believable. Both your characters and the world you have created need to be authentic. Spelling counts, grammar counts. Write the story that your audience needs to read and they will beat a path to your door. If it has a cat in it and maybe some great sex, I'll buy the first copy. <laughs> okay. Um, well, <clears throat> you got more. Uh, <laughs> I love this community of motion. We've got some uh, Stephen King in here. So we've got uh, vampires. We've got ghost stories. We've got Stephen mm -hmm. King. We've got, yeah. we got those uh, fear emotions coming. We've got this... Uh, you know, community of emotions coming out. Well, this is an interesting uh, post. A lot, lot of different topics in here about r related to writing, uh, but but one of the preeminent ones is, I think, this idea of the target audience and whether you should write to it or whether or not you should find it based upon what you what you love. Um, so, Hannah, when you're working with authors and uh, you're thinking about marketing their books. Um, do you sometimes find that authors haven't thought through this question of who their target audience is? Oh, yeah. I would say like 90% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless like, I don't know, I've worked with uh, writers who have been doing it for a long time. And in that case, it's like they already have their audience sort of mapped out. But if I'm working with like a first or second time novelist or whatever it might be it's like they're almost always like i don't quite know um i'm trying to figure that out and that's part of the process and that's totally fine right you know it's like it's you don't really know until you know like you have to try a bunch of different stuff to get there um i think that you know david brings up a lot of interesting points just as far as like okay you got to write what you know versus write writing what you know you should write what you think your audience wants and i don't quite agree with that um i think for me kind of i think in the end it's probably a mixture in the end where it's like once you've kind of figured out um what you enjoy writing about and what your readers want to uh read about from you um you know you probably at that point you're like yeah you kind of are writing to an audience because you have an audience to write to and you kind of know what they want and it kind of uh intertwines with what you want but i think you get there by writing what you're passionate about um and that's how you because that really shines through i think when you're reading a book it's like oh this person did the research this person really wanted to know about this um you know it's like i, I think that's a really powerful thing um and it's it's just how you figure it all out it's how you get started but um i like the post a lot and i, I didn't realize that cats were such a popular <laughs> thing on youtube either i'll have to check it out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, he's, he does have some good points. And I think um, this idea of, you know, it's great if you could also, if, if your target audience is also who you want, what you want to write, because then, you know, you're making that connection. But another thing they talk about, uh, Sarah, is this idea of, his idea of springboarding off of uh, sort of taking other things that have happened in the world or, or literature or something and turning it on its head, which mm -hmm. which he did with this story. You did that a little bit in your novel, The Plus One, right? I mean, you've got you've got a woman who's being hounded by her mother to get a date to go to her sister's wedding, and mm -hmm. she don't want to go, so she invents uh, or creates a robot. I mean, that's kind of turning reality on its head, too, similar to what he's doing here. How does that idea come to you? And uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it kind of relates to what he was saying about, like, you go into a bookstore and we're drowning in great writers. Like right. there are so many great writers out there. There are so many great books and movies and everything that have already been made. It's, it's almost hard to feel original or to come up with something that's totally new, but you can take an existing idea and put your own spin on it. Um, like he mm -hmm. did with Charles Dickens and Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, or my story was not based on anything, but it was a little bit inspired by uh, the movie Weird Science, which is like this 80s movie about <laughs> some teenage boys who create this like perfect robotic woman. And I, I sort of <laughs> flipped it around and it's now a female robotics engineer making like her perfect robotic boyfriend. Mm. Um, so I think that any, any book you write, any movie, anything like that, it's going to be similar to something else that's out there in some way. It's hard to come up with something that's totally original. But I think mm -hmm. kind of like Hannah was saying, like, as opposed to thinking just 
I need to create something that's totally new or I need to create something that fits exactly for this audience. Like find the idea that kind of sparks something within you um, and that you resonate with in some way and, and write it your way. And I think a lot of writers think of themselves as their own first audience. Like you're kind of writing for yourself and your tastes first. And if you can do that, then you're probably going to write something that you're passionate about and something that you actually enjoy. And that's going to make a better product in the end. Um, so it's sort of a mix of like, well, how do you, I think, thinking about your target audience, who your reader is, what they want is important. But if you think about that too much, especially in the first draft, it can kind of cloud your your vision and what you are actually interested in writing. So you kind of have right. to find that balance of when do you bring that into the process. Well, that's a good point. And a lot of times writers don't like to think necessarily about writing to a particular genre or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that people like certain kinds of books and mm-hmm. different people like different kinds of books. And some people may love the vampires and some people may be scared to read vampires <laughs> and have no desire to spend time. Some people may love a book on sex. Some people may love sex, but not books on sex. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, it runs the gamut, but if you, and if you're going to write a mystery, you know, it's okay. Is this going to be a hard boiled? Is it going to be a light mystery? You know, if you're, if you're doing one, you better not do the other. If you're thinking about marketing it to a particular audience. So good points there. Um, we appreciate that, uh, David. Thanks for sharing that with you. Uh, hey listeners, we'll be right back uh, in just a moment with our book recommendations. Uh, a few, uh, we got an elevator pitch, uh, and, uh, what's coming next. So stay with us. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, here we are in Act 3, book recommendations. Uh, We got some listener engagement and what's next. Uh, First, with the books, uh, Sarah, you want to lead us off with your recommendation this week? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm recommending something that I've been listening to on Libro.fm. Um, this is called Virtual You by Peter Coveney and Roger Highfield, who are two, I believe, British scientists. Um, this one is nonfiction, but the concept was really interesting to me, and I, I found it a fascinating read. Um, so it's it's kind of around this science that is emerging around the ability to create a simulation of a person, like a virtual replica of a person Uh, a person's body for medical purposes. Basically, the idea is that they can create a simulation that is meant to exactly replicate all of a person's organs and bodily systems and how everything functions. And then that way they can use that sort of AI version of them to predict what's going to happen to them medically, like be able to potentially tell when somebody's going to be sick before it happens or to create um, more personalized healthcare um, as opposed to our approach now is like this kind of one size fits all, like here's a medicine and we give the same pill to millions of different people and they're all going to respond in different ways. And it works for some people, but not for others. But hopefully the idea in the future is to create more individualized treatments where they can um, base it more on that person's DNA and how their actual individual body works. Um, so it's a really interesting concept. And they go in this book, it's it's written for a lay person. So it's not, you don't have to be like versed in the science to be able to understand it. But they go into a lot of the, the history behind how they're starting to create these simulations um, and the ways that they could potentially be used. I think my my one thing that I would say was a negative with the book was I don't think they went enough into the potential downsides. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's so many ethical problems and privacy issues and just things that maybe I'm just like kind of recalcitrant with this sort of stuff. But I think (laughs) some of this AI stuff I think is, uh, it's great, but it's also scary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that could go wrong with this sort of technology. And they have a chapter at the end where they deal with some of that, but they didn't really go into it too much in depth. Um, but it's still a really, really fascinating book and just an interesting topic. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's well worth reading. Yeah. I don't think I'm ready for the day when I go in for my fiscal and there's a, a robot there ready to Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> me either <laughs> poke, 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 poke and prod me and everything. Yeah. Uh, Sounds scary. <laughs> all right. So what's uh, Gwen got for us this weekend? Oh my gosh, Gwen. Yeah. You know, I should have picked some children's books actually. Maybe yeah. I should switch up my recommendations, but <laughs> maybe for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, just grab one right beside your children's yeah. book and recommend that one. You probably oh my got God, one. Right well, there. I have sunshine. It's, I guess that's not really children's books, but this is okay. Jared's book. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get to that in another episode. Um, <laughs> I'm recommending a book called 
Memorial by Brian Washington. Uh, I've read this a couple of years ago, and it's such a beautiful book. It's kind of one of those novels that reads like poetry. Um, it's about a gay couple, a black man, and an Asian man, um, and kind of just how they navigate each other's they're, they're kind of going through a rough patch at the beginning of the the book and um the asian man flies back home um to be with his family during kind of a, a big tragedy that's going on and so they they spend some time apart and um his partner is back home with uh his mother so his or his potential mother-in-law type figure um, and so they're kind of getting some time to bond together and learning about each other and uh their cultures and things like that and it's just a really great book there's a lot of awesome like beautiful lines just about love and um how hard it can be to love somebody and um you know having different cultural backgrounds you learn a lot about that and it's just it's a really great book i loved it i actually tweeted at brian washington and he responded to me so just, just to say like, <laughs> obviously i'm i'm famous now so yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> all right well we are in the summer here it's uh july 11th and uh, i'm recommending a beach read uh this is at least for me, it would be a beach read. Uh, I love to sit on the beach and look at the ocean and read about uh, naval uh, sort of engagements on the high seas. This one is by Thomas Russell. It's Under Enemy Colors. Uh, I'm a big Horatio Hornblower fan. also read the whole Ramage series. Um, this is the first in the series of the adventures of Charles Hayden. He's a lieutenant the British Navy at the time of the French Revolution. Uh, and one reviewer calls the series a worthy successor to Horatio Hornblower. So if you're into that sort of a swashbuckling that goes on and all the other um, sort of ins and outs of what it was like to serve in the British Navy during the French Revolution, uh, it's, and also as an officer because they were under a lot of pressure as well, probably not the best living environment to be either an officer or a uh, or <laughs> or just a regular grunt uh, on the boat there uh, during that time. But uh, a lot of interesting things happen in uh, this book and in the series that follows. So that's my recommendation. And uh, now we have one from Mark West. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is A New Mystery by Charlotte writer Mark DeCastric. This novel is titled The Secret of FBI File 100-3-116. This novel is the latest volume in Mark's Sam Blackman series. Set in Asheville, this series features Sam Blackman and Nikayla Robertson, two private investigators who have a knack for uncovering secrets from the past. In all of the books in this series, Mark actually incorporates a bit of Asheville history in his stories, and that is exactly what happens in this book. This story revolves around threats that were made to Martin Luther King in the mid-1960s when he visited Asheville. It's a riveting novel, and I highly recommend it. Thank you. I love that. Mark DeCastric's uh, a local Charlotte author. has written more than 20 novels. He's been on the show several times, uh, but I haven't seen a, a book title before. That takes up a lot of space on the cover. FBI file 100-3-116. Mm -hmm. We'll have to ask him if that's a real... A real file. It might be, maybe, So if, if that really happened in, in Asheville. Um, all right, well, uh, that's our book recommendations for this week. We hope you'll in, um, maybe pick up one of those and check it out this summer. We also have uh, an elevator pitch uh, this month. Uh, this is from Pernell Hughes, uh, and uh, let's listen in. Pernell Hughes, and my book is 10 Years. Becca and Charlie have hated each other since university, but now they have to complete a loved one's bucket list together. Ten Years is a funny, slow-burn, haters-to-lovers romance spanning ten years, roaming from London to Snowdonia, Brighton to Cannes. Described by romance writer Nancy Peach as, like Vary McFarlane and David Nichols had a love story love child, Ten Years will have you crying one minute and laughing the next. For fans of One Day and P.S. I Love You. All right, that's a great elevator pitch. Ooh, uh, I love that one. I want to read that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great. And she's going to be doing a, a blog post for us or has, or I'm trying to remember where we are in the lineup here, but uh, she is going to. It's coming up. Be coming up, coming up. Yeah, yeah that's I great. Th I think. Uh, all right, so uh, let's see here. Uh, I guess we're to the what's coming next, uh, Sarah. So you want to share that with our listeners? 
Yeah, sure. Um, next time we have a special author double feature. We're excited about that. So first we're going to feature author and true crime podcaster Andrea Dunlop and her novel Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, which Tara Conklin, a New York Times bestselling author, called a stylish, timely, buzzworthy literary thriller that I tore through with glee. And then we also have an interview with author Simon Van Boy and his novel The Presence of Absence, which author Claire Fullerton, writing for the New York Journal of Books, called A Tour de Force, a mind-bending, affecting story that breaks the heart open with startling clarity. All right, yeah, good stuff. Uh, I enjoyed my interview with uh, Andrea, and uh, uh, I enjoyed listening uh, to the Simon's interview as well. But uh, I think, uh, Sarah, you did that one. Yeah, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a great book. He had a lot of really right. interesting things to say. All right, Sarah, you, you and Gwen want to take us out of here? <laughs> Sarah, you and Gwen. <laughs> Hannah, you and Gwen. This is, this is Hannah's time. <laughs> Did I say Sarah? Yeah. I said Hannah. Hannah, Sarah, Sarah, Hannah. Yeah. I'm looking it, at Gwen bouncing around. I can't yeah. keep the name straight she's here. She's going yeah. ah, over here. So she says yeah. to read on, write on, and ah, on. Mm, rock on. <laughs> Today. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.